What kind of world do I want to see? I would like to see a world where we value other kinds of people and other kinds of species as much as we do ourselves, where we have stopped seeing everything as a resource for us to use and see ourselves as sharing this brief moment in space and time with with every other being on the planet. Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity, a podcast that aims to energise and inspire positive change through conversations with some incredible people. My guest today is Jane Rawson. Jane is a journalist, essayist, author, climate communicator and environmentalist. She has travelled the world as a writer for Lonely Planet, been the environment editor for The Conversation, worked for both government and not-for-profits and is now communications coordinator for the Tasmanian Land Conservancy. Jane and I discuss hope, fear, grief and drive in the face of climate change, trying to communicate with conspiracy theorists, the problem with capitalism, being a hypocrite, writing and creativity, being risk-averse, why nature is beautiful, aligning our values and our actions and much more. Jane Rawson's latest novel is From the Wreck. She is also the author of A Wrong Turn at the Office of Unmade Lists, a novella Formaldehyde and the non-fiction book The Handbook, Surviving and Living with Climate Change. You can also find Jane's short stories online and read her most recent article, Where Can You Be Safe in This World? Maybe We're Asking the Wrong Question, within the essay series Fire, Flood and Plague, essays about 2020 in The Guardian Australia. Please visit janerawson.com to find out more. I really connect with everything I have read that Jane has put on paper, but to be able to have a conversation with Jane allowed me to connect with another human on a deep and wonderful level about things that I believe are imperative for our future. The way Jane uses story as a way to communicate both personal and scientific insight is magical. I am thrilled to bring you this conversation, so without further delay, I bring you Jane Rawson. Jane, welcome to Moments of Clarity. Thanks for having me. No, it's absolutely my pleasure. I was just saying off off microphone, off camera, that I've been doing a little bit of a deep dive into your work and that I didn't really know a lot about your fictional work or the fictional stuff that you've been writing and it's absolutely incredible the stuff that I've had access, a lot of your short stories are available online. So I've been able to delve into those. And I I recommend that everyone should that's listening to this right now. But I wanted to start off with an introduction of yourself and uh, what you're doing now. Yeah, sure. So um, my name is Jane Rawson. I'm a writer. I write fiction and nonfiction. Most of what I write is about environmental issues, whether it is fiction or non-fiction. I'm really interested in wild animals and climate change in particular. But I'm also a professional writer. As I'm sure most of your listeners know, you can't generally make a living from writing fiction. So through most of my life, I've had full-time or nearly full-time jobs writing for organisations, working as a communications person. And these days I'm doing that for the Tasmanian Land Conservancy, which is an organisation that buys and protects land of high natural value in Tasmania. Oh, brilliant. What are some of the organisations you've worked with before? Um, I've done quite a lot of government work, um, working for Department of Transport and also uh, Department of Environment in Victoria. I was living in Melbourne for about 15 years before I moved to Tasmania but also for this cool little social enterprise called Info Exchange in Melbourne, which does IT support and IT products for other not-for-profits, uh, particularly health and housing not-for-profits. 
And as well as that, I worked for The Conversation, which is a news website that some of your listeners might be familiar with, publishes news and opinion written by academics. I was one of the startup editors there, the environment editor. And I worked for Lonely Planet for seven years as well. Yeah, but that was quite a while ago now. Oh, that's that's amazing. What a resume. Um, what have you learned across from, I guess, beginning and starting studying journalism, you know, out of school studying journalism and getting into the professional writing and then moving through some of these organisations? Have you, have you learned a bit more about yourself and where you want to place yourself in the world, both professionally and personally, through your work journey? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I went into journalism. I started studying journalism straight after school because I was super keen about social justice. I was really fired up about about, uh, issues to do with redistribution of wealth and political power uh, when I was, you know, 16, 17, 18. Um, So I studied journalism because I wanted to do something like report for four corners. I was committed to the idea then that If people just know about things, everything will change. And I think that has perhaps been the biggest shift that I've had as I've moved through my career. Uh, As a communications person whose job is to tell people about things, I think it's become clear to me that telling people about things is nowhere near enough to make them change. There are so many different things that affect what we choose to do and the information we have is only a very small part of that, I think. Yeah, I guess that's that has been one of the major changes. And that's kind of a tricky thing to take on board when your job is communications. Um, <laughs> there, there's definitely been a big shift in communication theory, I think, since I studied it at university, where it's now become much more important to think about, well, what what are the values, what are the frameworks that the people you're talking to have already? How do you listen more to them? How do you learn more about how they see the world? And how do you talk to them in light of all of that? This has been something that's particularly been huge for climate change, I think. For a lot of climate change communicators for a long time, we were just like, if people understand the science, their behaviour will change. Why would anyone want climate change? Climate change is terrible if we explain to them what it is, what its implications are, and how their behaviour affects it. They'll stop doing those things. Um, That turned out not at all to be the case. There are so many reasons why people accept that message or reject that message, and I think that's been a really hard slog in that industry and area, trying to figure out better ways to to talk about climate change. That would... I don't know if that answered your question. Absolutely, really. it doesn't. It, it gives me about a thousand more questions to ask. So thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, no worries. Anyway, uh, there's so many things. I, I want to go back to, I guess, the reason I started up this podcast, just to give you a little bit of context. And I guess I went into. So I understand your frustration, and on a very minor level, as someone that isn't is a teacher and talks to students that you know can disagree or disagree, but they are really receptive to ideas. Um, So I can imagine people in the public and even in government and in different businesses not being able to just see the clear science that is basically foolproof now. Like the, the debate has shifted from is it real to what can we do to anyone that cares to listen. So we understand that. And for me, my frustration was around that and I guess as a teenager, it was to do with organised religion and being someone that probably wanted to attack organised religion, having grown up in a Catholic school and a Catholic family and all of that. And 
it was on the attack. It was the the attack that can't you just see how obvious this is? The evidence, and then it moved to to things like climate change and politics. And I basically became a keyboard warrior trying to change the opinions of everyone online with facts. But I realised that that was actually creating more division than anything. So I left social media. I fell into a bit of a hole of how can the world change? What can we do? Um, I tried to do, you know, lend myself at a bit of writing or look at different university courses and just wondering how can I, how can I make changes? And over time I let it go and I realised that you have to listen. And, and you mentioned that a few times in there, that it's about listening and understanding the values of others and it's not throwing down the most recent article you've read or, you know, the science down someone's throat. You have to be on their page and almost see them as part of your tribe and then maybe you can make a difference to to their thoughts and opinions. So that's where why I started this, to, to actually have a, a way to communicate with people um, on a range of issues with a rain, range of opinions that's that's where I come from. And I guess the question that comes from that is, was there a, a point for you where you just realised, hey, the facts, the evidence, the information isn't enough? Can you remember the moment maybe that your mindset shifted from that to actually we might have to touch on on something else here? So what do you now try to touch on with people to inform them better? And was there a moment that you can remember that that shift occurred? I think... One of the moments, or it was a sort of a stretched moment when that occurred, was when I started talking to an online friend of mine who worked for the Australian Conservation Foundation. And I was interested in working for them as well and applied for a job there. And before I applied for the job, he gave me a bunch of reading that he said was kind of the basis of what they used for their communications. And it was... It was a bunch of comms theory, basically. It was more up-to-date stuff and was was about that very issue of, you know, how, how resistant people are to facts when those facts don't fit within the, the social frameworks that they have for themselves already. Um, that the, the, they're only interested, and this isn't, when I say they, I mean it's me as well, that I'm only interested in listening to evidence that, fits in with with the system I've already devised for seeing the world. You're going to only shift a little bit. You're not going to suddenly abandon everything that you've built your values around and and shift your worldview completely. It's just an extremely rare thing to happen. So, yeah, I, I think it, it was that. He, he's, I, I won't say his name because, you know, he, I haven't asked him if I can, but <laughs> <laughs> he, he's a really interesting writer. He uses Facebook as his main medium for writing and, although he's someone who is strongly committed to the environmental cause and works in that area, he is one of the least didactic people I've ever seen write about things online. He writes very much about his experience. My experience of this is never, I think you should. It's just, let let me tell you some stories about some things I think. Um, And I think that is one of the good approaches, uh, is to talk about well, this this is what I thought and this is what I did. If that's useful to you, go ahead and, and adopt that as well or ask me more questions about it. People will still see that in some cases as a, an attack on the way they do things. For example, you know, you might be vegan yourself or you might have friends who are vegans. And often if people say at a restaurant, oh, you know, I'm, I'm vegan, is there any? 
people instantly take that as an attack on them when it totally isn't at all. It's, it's just saying this is how I choose to live my life. So, you know, it's not foolproof by any means. But I do feel like that's that's one way to, to have a go at telling that story. The other is is like, as I was saying before, is just to try and figure out what 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 are the problems and fears that the person you're talking to has? What are what are the things that they want to see change? How would they like to see the world be better and different? And is there any meeting place between what you want and what they want that you can try and talk to them about? Um, don't come to them with a solution, I guess. Don't say, you know, you need to get solar panels. Talk about, you know, what, what are some of the issues you're facing in your life? Uh, what are some of the things you're worried about? It might be, you know, oh, I can't, I'm having heaps of trouble paying my power bills. In which case, rather than saying to them, you need to get solar panels, you might want to talk to them about, well, okay, mate, these are some really simple things you can do that will help you save energy in your home and that will reduce your power bill rather than saying to them, you need to save energy to save the world. You need to stop using as much electricity because you need to fight climate change. Talk to them about what it is that that their trouble is. That's I'm kind of referring to work I did for the Department of the Environment in Victoria, which was about which was about household energy use. So, wow, I'm giving you some really long answers. <laughs> I appreciate the long answers because I can often talk too much. So this is about you, not me. So let's keep it that way. <laughs> Take as long as you need. But I do absolutely. I was watching Sean McAuliffe's On The Source recently and you mentioned uh, the, the idea of veganism and one of the reasons people often feel that he talks to a psychologist throughout the show and he mentions the fact that when he says that he doesn't drink himself, people are offended or affected by that, whether or not he's judging them, like, you know, but it's almost an assumption that they are being judged by him. You think you're better than us, that sort of idea and I think it happens with vegans too. I used to feel that way. Uh, a friend of mine was a vegetarian for a, for a back when and, and still now, but, I mean, it's much more common. But this wasn't that long ago, but I felt like he was the only vegetarian I knew and now I know a few vegans. But um, he was always talking about that. And I said, but what about this issue? What about that issue? Why are you judging me on this? And he's like, I'm not judging you. I'm just telling you I'm vegetarian. And I was that way. And... And probably the same with people that didn't drink once upon a time. And I've had to shift my perspective in the way I act too. But And now I, I see it as something to aspire towards, something to, to strive for, that I actually do want to align my values with my actions. And that would be something that I need to do to ensure that I am doing that. But it took a lot of reflection and a lot of sort of um, unpacking and, and a removal of the ego in a way. And I think that's really hard for people to do. Do you have any sort of reflections on that that you've had to learn on this journey that you can sort of take from your own uh, discussion about veganism and Sean McAuliffe's on alcohol? Uh, definitely. That that idea that you raised of having to remove your ego, of having to make it not all about you, is, I guess, one of the most difficult things in opening yourself up to listening to, to how other people feel about these issues. That and urgency, I think, are the two main things. Let me start with ego. Uh, like you, I, I feel similarly about veganism. Um, I am not a vegan. I'm not even a vegetarian. And I used to be one. My values are strongly vegan. How? What is it that is making it so hard for me to shift from a position where I know that's the right thing to do, but something that I haven't found it in myself to adopt yet? And, yep, that's partly ego. 
it's also, I think, a, a really strong force in Australian culture and maybe elsewhere, I haven't lived elsewhere long enough to know, is this idea of not looking like a weirdo. And I think this has been like a big issue in climate change and is an issue with things like veganism, is that no matter how strongly our values, our conscience might tell us this is the right thing to do, we're super uncomfortable with behaving in a way that would be seen as unusual and uncomfortable. Um, we like to keep a low profile generally. We like to just behave like a normal person, just be normal. And I think that that's something I found a lot when talking about changing your life, both to mitigate your effect on climate and to adapt to the effects of climate, is when you talk about that, you feel like a total freak. You feel like such a weirdo generally in Australian culture. And that's a really uncomfortable feeling. And I think that is also something we have to overcome when talking to people about these issues is how do you make, how do you help people to feel like it's, it's okay to feel this way? Like it's okay to be scared about a future where there's climate change. Like it's okay to say, you know what, I'm not going to take any more overseas trips. This is in a pre-COVID past, obviously, because I don't feel all right about that. Or, you know what, I'm just not going to eat any meat anymore because I, I feel like that's the wrong thing to do. These are all uncomfortable kind of decisions to make about your life and make you, um, a, a, I guess, an ideology-driven person, which is also something we're not very comfortable with in Australia. So, yeah, I guess another part of communicating these sorts of things is being prepared to say over and over again, I've made this change to my life. I'm doing this because I think it's the right thing to do. And, and letting people know that that is something you can do, just, just standing up and, you know, being the change you want to see in the world. Not just making that change, but talking about how you've done that. What was the other thing I said? Uh, urgency. 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 Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I think um, a big barrier to accepting and using different methods of communicating and abandoning that idea of I'm going to tell you everything about this, I'm going to tell you all the facts, I'm going to give you all the evidence, you're going to change your mind, is that this feels like such an urgent issue. It is such an urgent issue. And it's so hard to say, okay, I'm just going to take a breath and stop and listen to you. And it's such a, it's such a slow process to, to listen to one person and talk to one person based on, it's so much easier to just, you know, put, put a paper up online and go, look, everybody, change, hurry, quick. This is urgent. And I don't know how how to balance those two things. I don't think I've I've come to a level of comfort with that. The idea that this only works if you do it slowly and individually and the idea that we don't have time to do that. We just don't have that much time. So when you mention the word urgency, do you think that we need to be more urgent or actually step away from the urgency that we seem to be addicted to in our lives? Uh, I think it's that the issue of climate change and environmental degradation is extremely urgent. Like we are at a point now where we we've on the brink of or have passed over the brink into disaster, but that the methods that we might need to use in order to bring other people along and to change society and to to make a shift are perhaps necessarily slow. And that there is there is maybe no solution to that. There's maybe no solution that that there is no way of making that change quickly enough to catch up with the urgency of the problem. 
And so we just shout at people and, like you were saying, get on the internet and you're just like, can't you see? Can't you see? This is terrible. We need to do something right now. Um, but that doesn't work. So, yeah, I don't know where that leaves us as people trying to change people's minds and behaviour. Yeah, and, and that is your your work, both, you know, with your fiction as well as your professional, you know, um, non-fiction writing too. How, as a communicator, do you balance, you know, that need of what the organisation you're working for wants with getting messages across that, you know, you've still got to try and be an optimist at times versus the maybe personal despair that sometimes can overtake? How do you balance those two feelings? Um, I'm very lucky in that the organisation I work for, the Tasmanian Land Conservancy, is generally talking to people who already accept the importance of protecting nature. That's, that's already a strong ethic in large parts of Tasmanian society and definitely there are strong pockets of it on the mainland as well. And there is something very uncomplicated and comfortable about the idea of you buy land, you protect that land, nature thrives on that land. It's, um, it's much easier for most people, like people from all varieties of political backgrounds and persuasions and social strata um, to accept that idea. That's a, it's a really simple idea. It's much less difficult than we're lobbying the government to change laws to stop developers doing these sorts of things. You go, that's going to put a whole bunch of people offside immediately. Or, you know, we, are, we want you to come with us to the forest and tie ourselves to a tree. We're going to break the law. We want to stop people logging here. A lot of people don't want to do that. Our system is very comfortable with the idea that if you buy a thing, you own a thing, you do what you want with that thing. Uh, and that, that's what we do. We buy some land, we stop anything bad happening to nature on that land, it's our land. So <laughs> in that sense, I'm lucky that's a, a simple message to tell to people. And really the, the, the only difficult part is convincing them to give more money than they might want to otherwise give. But that, that's, you know, there's, there's a plenty of research and work done in philanthropy on how you might go about doing that. And I have a great philanthropy team that is really experienced in that, that backs me up and talks to me about how might we explain this to people so that they want to give money to this. So I think it's a lot, it's a lot easier communications job than it would be if I were, say, working for the Climate Council or someone like that who wants to upset the status quo of how we do things in the world in order to make this massive social and economic change. That's, that's heaps harder to sell. <laughs> I'm not saying what they're doing or what other organisations are doing is not important. That's incredibly important work. And I'm really glad that people are doing that. I've, what I've chosen to do at this point in my life is an easier thing to do. And that, I think, is partly from having spent years doing more of the harder sort of work of trying to change the status quo uh, and, and feeling a lot of despair about that, definitely. And that is still something that I guess I do in my own personal writing. Uh, the essays that I write and the fiction that I write are much more about what we need to do is completely undo capitalism. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. So I guess, yeah, there, there's that. I approach this problem from two different kinds of angles, one, one in my paid work and one in my largely unpaid creative writing work. That 
idea of dismantling like the system versus working with the systems, one that I personally struggle with when I'm talking to people because right now there's there's a lot of non-mainstream thinking that is becoming more mainstream in Australia than ever before perhaps. And and some of that is about dismantling the system that isn't working for us. It's actually working for them, using us as products and resources rather than as social beings with agency, I guess. But then you've got that almost maybe to the right of politics. I don't like to define people uh, necessarily, but oftentimes you've got the conspiracy thinking that comes from the same disenchantment with the world, the same problems with the society that we live in, the same fears, the same everything, yet instead of saying it's, you know, government inaction on climate change or it's, you know, a profit-driven system that ensures that the dollars are more important than humanity or the environment. So we've got that on one level that wants system change. Then you've got it the other where it's Bill Gates has, you know, wants to vaccinate us all to have mind control or 5G towers or even new world order, sovereign citizen stuff that's starting to, you know, delve into the history of laws and try to say, oh, we're actually manipulated with words and with, uh, I've looked into this a little bit because of some conspiracy thinkers around me have uh, really jumped on this and I'm, I, I wonder how to communicate. I'm listening at the moment, I'm in my listening stage and I'm loving that I'm able to talk to someone that does communicate for a living. Maybe you can First of all, what would you do, you know, and maybe you are doing it, but what would you do confronting two people with the same fears, the same basic disillusionment with society that have found two completely separate symptoms or causes for those symptoms? How would you talk to those people differently and and you agree with one, you disagree with the other? How does your communication change and adapt to that? I think that is such an interesting issue. You know, I look at conspiracy theorists on the on the right side of politics, and yeah, you know, my first impulse is, oh my god, you people are crazy. Um, but my sort of more in depth reflection is, well, I yeah, like you're saying, I too look at the status quo and think something weird is going on here, something wrong is going on here, there's a horrible underlying corruption to it all that needs to be fixed. Am I just like those people, (laughs) but just in a different way? Yeah, I totally get how you get to a point where where you feel like something dodgy is going on and nobody's telling you about it. And there is also such a, there's a kind of dark, satisfying thrill in feeling like you understand how stuff works and nobody else does. And whether that be on the on the left side of politics or the right side of politics, that's a pretty fun feeling to have. I know stuff and you people are stupid. <laughs> so I guess, look, I don't actually know the answer to this question, so I'm going to talk while I think. My, my initial impulse with a lot of people who think that way on the right has been, this this is too hard for me. I do not understand where that comes from and we are so far apart on what we want from the world that I can't see how we can ever talk about this to one another. We just won't even make sense to each other. But more generously, I guess, or more ambitiously perhaps, I think, again, it probably comes back to that question of, all right, we're, we're all jumping to solutions here and maybe we need to all take a step back and go, all right, what what is it that we want the world to look like? 
what what's the world we're trying to work towards are there any similarities in in where we're trying to get to i mean you're getting there by saying that 5g is ruining everything and so we need to take down all the 5g towers and i'm getting there by saying you know the environment protection biodiversity conservation act isn't working and we need a whole new system for protecting nature in australia what's what what's the thing we're we're both trying to get to and is there any common ground in that? To which I don't know the answer. It's possible that, that they're hoping for a future where every individual can eat every other individual and nobody ever has to help anybody else ever. And I believe that we should all be helping each other more. And you know, maybe, maybe we have no common ground, but I guess that would be the first question for me. Yeah, I, I've always thought that. I said, I can't I don't know if I could be friends with someone radically right or, you know, whatever, because of my values and my opinions. And then I thought if I'm continually alienating or isolating myself in my own echo chamber and people I agree with, maybe there's more change that can happen within the system I'm in. But to make wholesale change and to stop these people potentially becoming more and more uh, aggressive and isolated and, and sort of on the fringe of society that they may, you know, end up doing some extreme things to try to take back some power. What can I do in the, in the meantime? And, and then unpacking that, I started to realise that I actually think that, that there are people out there that just don't want any social, I guess, safety nets. They don't want any government. They don't want, you know, and, and that's a, a little bit crazy. But when you do go back to what's the world we want to picture, that's such an important question. And this is probably a bit early in the podcast to ask you, but what do you think when you're confronted by this and when you have to take a step back yourself, what sort of future do you actually hope for? Can you help us um, visualise maybe, you know, what the next 20, 30, 40 years might look like to you, Jane Rawson, you know, that is a positive, a more positive future? What kind of world do I want to see? I would like to see a world where we value other kinds of people and other kinds of species as much as we do ourselves, where we have stopped seeing everything as a resource for us to use and see ourselves as sharing this brief moment in space and time with, with every other being on the planet, you know, animals, plants, other humans, and trying to just get along better with everyone. I mean, it's... Again, it feels like a really stupid thing to say. It feels so uh, unrigorous to say, you know, I, I just would like a future where everyone's kinder to everyone else. But I guess that's essentially what it is, that that it's a social system that accepts that everyone needs help at some point um, and that includes other species and other humans and that we should all be happy to, or we should all at least, we should have a system that encourages us, us to, to help each other and to support each other and to share what we have and to not be greedy, I guess, to not be so fearful that we're constantly just trying to protect ourselves by accumulating things and accumulating safety, but that we feel trusting enough that we have a system that will support us if things go wrong, that we can be generous, that we can be open-hearted, that we can be open-minded. It would It's not, you know, it's not much of a manifesto, I don't think, but that that's kind of the basis of it, I guess. I think it has to start 
with the wish and, and the feelings that you get, doesn't it? And I know businesses and organisations, when they try to make shifts and change, they get told to come up with a couple of slogans or values, you know, throw your values up and and every decision from there is, does it go back to that? Does it go back to inclusion? Does it go back to community and whatever? So you have to start somewhere and being kind is a perfect place to start. Being not greedy is a perfect place to start. You talked about the fear that sometimes fear around us actually stops us from taking chances and actually, you know, giving something a go and helping our neighbour. We just want to support the people we know and ourselves a lot of the time. And and on that note, there's also the more left side of politics talks about social safety nets and, you know, having better welfare systems so you can take a chance and if it doesn't work out, the government is there to support you. And the entrepreneurs of the world actually want are more on the right in many cases, the ones that want to talk about creating a th- vibrant and thriving business, actually say we want to remove the red tape so that we're able to take chances. But but people are going to fail when, when they take chances. And if there's nothing there to protect them when they fall, that's a world that doesn't look great to me. So I think saying to entrepreneurs, we want you to take chances. We want you to succeed and, and lead the world to better places, but not just for money, but to help people to help people. So I think there's fear on both sides. So once again, I, I don't know why it's coming to this. Maybe I've just been thinking about, you know, how do I engage with people that are different from me? You said it in your different species, but also different people. You want everyone to, to be lifted in this new world. Your most recent article was about safety though. And I'd like to touch on that. It was about your search for safety all your life and then maybe a more recent realisation. So can you take us through a short synopsis of that article and then actually delve into a little bit of the feelings that came behind writing that? Yeah, sure. Um, I was asked to write an article for an anthology that is about the year 2020 and specifically about fire, flood and plague. That was pretty much the brief. Uh, What... I decided I wanted to write about is something that has preoccupied me, I guess, my whole life, but more consciously since about 2014, when I started writing a handbook about surviving climate change. And that is the question of how can I be safe? And more recently, is that even a good question? Is there an alternative to being safe that is something better? So I am neurologically an anxious person. I'm I'm a kind of person who is frightened of things uh, and who is hypervigilant for risk, who sees threat everywhere. So that's an unfortunate setup. I don't like it very much, uh, but it is the way I've gone through life. And for a lot of my life, unquestioningly, I was just like, the world is scary and I am scared. More recently, you know, I've become more aware that, oh, no, that's just, mostly that's just my brain. The world is not nearly as scary as I think it is. But that's, you know, I've had 40 years or so of of seeing the world that way as a frightening place that I need to set up protections for. I'm a person who prepares myself for things, who finds out information ahead of time, who sets up structures so that bad things won't happen to me or to people I care about. So in line with that and my concern about climate change, in 2014 with a colleague of mine at The Conversation, I started writing The Handbook, A Guide to Surviving and Living with Climate Change, which is based on the premise that the government doesn't care if you die as a result of the things that climate change is going to cause. 
So the government isn't looking out for you. It's not going to stop the fires. It's not going to stop floods. It's not going to stop food shortages. It's So you're probably, you're going to be on your own a lot of the time in these situations. What can you do to help prepare yourself and your life to deal with both the mental and emotional trauma of that, but also keeping yourself physically safe? So we wrote this handbook, which was essentially saying what we need to do is change the system of government so we don't have to deal with these terrible things. But given that we have to deal with these terrible things, here are some things you can do. It it has lots of jokes in it too, this book, I should say, and it's a lot more fun than it sounds in the description. Um, But one of the main questions that we came up against a lot and that we got a lot of people asking us was, where should I move to so I can be safe? And our research into that came to the conclusion there, there's nowhere. The, there isn't anywhere that you can say absolutely certainly this, will, this place will be safe from climate change. Given that, and given that particularly over the last couple of years when we've seen uh, more and more urgent reports from climate bodies and since we've had the spring, summer and autumn of terrible bushfires in Australia, I've had more people asking me, you know, what do do I do? How how do I make sure my children are safe in this future world? And I myself have changed my life to to try and be more safe. I moved to Tasmania. But it's been a dawning realisation for me that none none of these things can protect you and that even if they could, what kind of a life is that to have made yourself safe and to have left everybody else to, to deal with this? So my article was kind of an attempt to unpick that idea, what, what are the alternatives, and I guess came to, I never come to a complete conclusion about anything, but, um, <laughs> but was, was working with the idea that it's much more important to, when you see something fearful, to be brave about it, to stand up against power that is trying to cause these situations to put yourself in danger to try and make the world a better place, um, that that is something really worth striving for and aspiring to, to, to try to change things, even though it's dangerous to you, sometimes physically, sometimes emotionally, often socially, that that's, that's something that I in particular need to try to do. Again, this was a story about this is something I have realised I should be doing. If that's useful information to you, good Yeah. James Haddam, the CEO of the Tasmanian Land Conservancy, where you work, actually sent me the article originally um, and said, have a read of this. You'll like this. And I loved it. And then, you know, had to explore and, and look into some other things. But it connected with me so, so well because in my life, Oh, I've always wanted what I call an insurance policy against regret so that in every action I make, I try to picture all the things I'll hate about that in the future. And if there's not many of them, I'll do it. And it almost takes the fun and the of out of the present because you're thinking of the future. And I, I get that sort of idea from you too, that if there was a, everyone's jumping off a bridge into a pool, you'd go and measure the pool and make sure there's no rocks and anything and then jump in, but everyone's left. And talk- <laughs> yeah, I probably still wouldn't jump in because there would have been something I would have missed. Yeah, but That's absolutely. right. But, you know, you've, everyone's dried themselves yeah. off and left before you're ready, and I'm a bit like that too. So how do we have fun is part of this as well, as well as caring, but then also how do we bring people uh, on our side too because it is very true that... You know, we live privileged lives. We're able to choose where to live. We're able to 
maybe find safer places and become off-grid and do all of those things. But what's the use if humanity is not coming along with us, as you say? So did you have moments where you it was, was moving to Tasmania a moment where you said isolation, putting myself away from danger is going to work and you realised while in Tassie that it just wasn't going to happen? Or was it always in your mind that people, I don't know, or were you always having that, I guess, debate in your mind about people and bringing people with you versus putting a media away, communications away and just writing my own books in the forest and, and look, leave it at that? It's been a bunch of different things. It has never been for me just, okay, I am going this, to this place and I will keep myself safe and that's all that matters. You know, that, that works well in a story or an article. <laughs> that's a nice, clean, simple thing to say. But in real life, it's, look, when, when we asked one researcher when we were writing the handbook, where would you go so you could be safe? And she said to us, that's such an objectionable question to even ask. You can't you can't give up on making the change. You can't remove yourself from this and and stop fighting. And I, I at that point I was like, yeah, absolutely. That's absolutely the question I'm asking is, where can I go and be safe and still continue the fight? I don't feel like I should choose one or the other. So Tasmania was like your insurance policy. A lot of thinking about where where is the least regretful choice for me. Part of that was, as I kind of jokingly said to my brother when he was trying to figure out where to go that was safe, is which version of climate change death would I prefer? <laughs> uh, let's not assume I can avoid this altogether, but for me, I feel like like urban breakdown, heat wave, no water and food in the middle of the city in Melbourne is grosser than dying in a bushfire. So I'll choose Tasmania. But, yeah, obviously, I would much prefer neither of those things, but mm. I, I felt like a future of being in a, in a crumbling urban infrastructure over the next 20 years as I got older seemed harder to live with than being somewhere where I would have to frequently evacuate my house because of bushfire. It was partly that. But it was also that I was tired of living in the city and only having humans for company. I, w I wanted some, like, you know, they're unwilling company. They don't like me, but there are a lot more animals that aren't human around me here in, in rural Tasmania than there were in Melbourne. And it it is good for me and makes me happier to be around more different kind of life forms than just humans. Reminds me that they have all kinds of needs that are different to our needs and different ways of living to the ways that we live. And there was also the question of cost. Melbourne is an expensive city to live in. The kinds of things that I wanted for my life, which were more green space and more quiet, are things that only rich people can afford in Melbourne. You can't have those things if you're poor in Melbourne. So I moved to Tasmania <laughs> where... <laughs> where you can have those things even if you're poor. Um, I wanted those things more, it turned out, than I wanted great bars. I really like great bars, but I wanted quiet and space more than I wanted those. And living somewhere that is cheaper to live means I don't have to go to work as often and means that I have time to write creatively as well as for money. Um, so, yeah, that, that was why Tasmania. 
But I did feel strongly, for example, during the Black Lives Matter marches and things that were happening in Melbourne, the idea of which terrified me. I was like, this is, oh, my God, this is so dangerous. You could get sick. (laughs) But at the same time made me feel like, yeah, well, sometimes things are more important than getting sick and you just have to do them. And I felt like in, in a place like like regional Tasmania, that's not, it's not really an option to do that kind of political activity anymore. That, that's gone. And that made me regretful. Yeah. Climate crisis, that word, that, that idea, and we're in the midst of it. But you're talking about social collapse, you know, the urban sprawls that we see today, you know, falling apart and not being a part of our future for very long. And you almost compared that heat wave in a city death versus the inevitable bushfire death. Do you really see the world like that or is that just a possibility? And if you do see the world as, you know, more more and more likely heading towards that, you know, we're going to suffer in some way in the not-too-distant future. How did you come to that idea and viewpoint? What was it that convinced you? Uh, I think a lot of people are suffering now as a result of climate change. Paddy Manning has a new book out. I was going to hold it up, but we're not on video, so what's the point? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Paddy Manning has a new book out which is called, hang on, Body Count. How Climate Change is Killing Us, uh, and he has gone through and documented deaths from, he's just looking at Australia, documented deaths from a number of extreme weather events, particularly in Australia, and, and what we can attribute to climate change. So this is a situation that's already occurring here. It's a situation occurring on a much bigger scale in many other countries. We've been somewhat insulated from it due to our wealth and our social social systems. We still have some kind of safety net here in Australia. So I guess the future that I see for the next, I'm 50 years old, let's say I live to 90 for the next 40 years, is not not complete social collapse. That could happen. I don't know. But I don't, that's not what I picture when I think about it. But what I think about it is increasing incidences of minor social collapse, I guess. So things like, you know, parts of infrastructure that we rely on breaking down, somehow finding the money to fix them, then they break down again. There's less money around. You know, we look at what's happening now with COVID. This is proving to be an incredibly expensive process for governments. What does that mean for when uh, sea level rise, you know, affects how water infrastructure works in our coastal cities? Is there going to be the money around to fix that or is there, is there not? Is that just going to be something we have to continue to live with, that it's heaps harder to get fresh water, that sewage systems don't work properly anymore? You know, same as, as we begin to lose, like, coastal roads. Do we accept that our incredibly road-based food freight infrastructure just doesn't really work all that well anymore, so it's going to be a lot harder to get fresh food? To places or do we somehow find the money to, to keep fixing that and repairing it, moving roads further inland? So it's, I guess, the future I see is one where crisis comes on crisis comes on crisis. All of these are expensive to solve and money gets harder and harder to find and we just can't do that work anymore and there's going to be, we're just going to accept a level of things not functioning anymore, I suppose. 
And I guess the other part of that is that Australia has become a society that is increasingly polarised by wealth, that our welfare system, we've, we've you know, broken it down a lot. And so it's a future where more and more people will become marginal, where more people will not get support anymore. We, we tend to, you know, as things get more difficult, push more people outside our area of concern. You're no longer my problem. I don't want to pay for your problems. I don't see any reason why I won't become one of those people. Right now, I'm one of the, the privileged and the wealthy, but, you know, it wouldn't take that much for me to fall onto the other side. And then, you know, if you're in that situation where, where you are poor, where the government doesn't care to support you anymore, where social infrastructure is breaking down and sometimes getting fixed and sometimes not, where do you want to live when it's like that? So, yeah, I think that and the, the best answer to that I think that I found is among people who care about you um, is, is a good answer. Among people who are resourceful, uh, where you have a diversity of people with a diversity of skills and outlooks and uh, mindsets and neurological setups, um, but who operate on a principle of we care about each other and we look after each other. So, yeah, that's the very long answer to that question. Oh no, it's brilliant! Uh, you made me picture a few things. I pictured the uh, the Simpsons episode where the the town is covered by so much litter that they just move the town. They pick it up and move up the road, and the single tear down the Native American man's eye about what's happened, and how that's a joke, but it's not. It's actually a commentary on the society, the way that we treat society, and Indigenous people too. Uh, you know. And being on a Fox News on Fox Network as The Simpsons is, they do that incredibly well, where they're able to get away with that sort of thing. There's also a couple of ways that you talked about Paddy Manning's book, which was it's happening now. Well, drought is affected. You know, regional and rural Australia is you know decimated. Uh, you go to certain places that have so, uh, for sale signs on every house, and people have, that were successful and living a life that they thought was going to support them is are now in horrible, horror conditions and no one really cares. Likewise, in the places like the Hunter Valley or, you know, which is just being des- destroyed by fossil fuel industry, these beautiful places where you should be sipping on great wine, you end up, you know, having lead-based water, you know, in your backyard and what can you do about it? Yeah, your children um, choking yeah. on coal dust. Yeah. Yeah. And that so that is happening. So those are the visualisations I sort of had. Another thing that, you mentioned was that urban society and that urban change. And you've written a story, Kangaroo, which I read and it touched on. Maybe a battle, I just sensed a battle between, you know, humanity being the most important things and the people that you love, but then how do we live in a world and what are the solutions and is there actually a solution that will make everyone better off? Or, you know, I just felt that struggle between species and animals and and life and habitat versus what humans are used to and what we want and maybe we're going to have to give up a fair bit can you maybe give a little synopsis once again on kangaroo and then also explain your thinking behind writing that and maybe how you reflect on it now sure uh kangaroo is a story that i wrote when i was reading eo wilson's work about saving half the world for habitat so he is an environmental and scientific thinker who, who is trying to get up the idea basically that the only way we can fix a lot of the problems we have is if we move humans out of half the land surface. 
and leave leave half the land for other creatures. So obviously that would require some fairly significant changes to the way that we live our lives. It was also inspired by living in an inner Melbourne urban enclave that would consider itself hugely progressive, definitely big believers in climate change, wanting to do something to fix that, and in which people were also protesting against having three-storey housing in their neighbourhood. And that irked me so much. I feel like we, a lot of progressive people struggle to join up all the various things that are going on. It's a complex question, obviously. It's a complex question. But to me, it seems like we need to accept that we have this many people. If we have this many people and we want to reduce emissions and we want to have good habitat for wildlife, that means we all have to live a lot closer together, says me, someone who has moved to regional Tasmania with heaps of space around me. Obviously, I'm a hypocrite. Everyone's a hypocrite. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so the, this story came out of that. And the story, the idea was, all right, we're, we're saving half the world for habitat. We need to move humans into denser populations. You have two choices. If you live in the, in the suburbs or in rural areas, you can either move into these denser high-rise living areas in the city. They're very nice, dense, high-rise living areas. Or if you don't want to do that, you can have your brain transferred into a native species and you can go and live in the other half of the world with the wild animals. So it's a story about a couple where the woman in the couple, they both feel great guilt about the impact that they're having on the world. They're both very progressive. They're both very environmentally concerned. She feels like the best way to deal with her guilt is to, yeah, yeah, get on with it. Let's move into the city. I need to do more work on behalf of animals to help support this. She works as a lawyer. She... Um, and, you know, she's basically working to fix things, uh, whereas her partner, the only way he can deal with his guilt is to stop being human and to stop having any impact as a human on the world. He can't deal with any aspect of that. So he becomes a kangaroo and joins a group of kangaroos, which I think is a lot of my work is about how how do we deal with the fact that we are breaking the world? How do we... How do we deal with that emotionally and morally? What is the best thing to do? And is it to continue to minimise ourselves, to reduce ourselves, to make ourselves smaller and smaller and smaller until we are guilt-free? Or is it to say, okay, I'm here, I'm using these resources, I'm having these impacts, what can I actively do to improve the situation? How do I throw myself into this? How do I make my life on earth worthwhile if I'm going to use up all this stuff? And that's a constant conflict I have. So that's what that story was about. Oh, it's amazing. It's everything you've that I've read that you've written has has been able to touch me. And I know that a lot of people feel that way. And that's why you're writing, I guess. And, and you know, that's why you're able to connect people. But that idea of sometimes I just say every human possibly should just die right now and the world will be a better place. And then I'm like, we've all thought that. Yeah. But then we're the ones that love and care and, and create art and do all this amazing stuff too. We do improve things. If we, we save koalas from trees and feed, give them water, you know, you don't see kangaroos jumping over and feeding a, kang, a koala that's just been burnt water. It's humans that are doing it too. So we've got such great, immense hope and ability to be unbelievable in a good way. And we probably are doing that in so many ways. There's so many brilliant people doing so many amazing things. But as a society somehow where we're able to say it's society, even though we're all part of society, we're all doing it. But 
we're able to prob- offload some of that responsibility by saying it's society. We are destroying the place too. And it is such a hard thing. And I, yeah, that inner city idea of being so progressive yet and, and you know, buying something that comes from, oh, uh, it was from a rubber tree that instead of plastic, but it was from the Amazon or wherever, you know, it was something had to give to get that rubber or whatever. And I feel the same way with the uh, same-sex marriage vote that occurred recently and it was actually a lot of Labor seats that voted the most staunchly against same-sex marriage and it was because of a lot of new migrant votes. Yet the green inner-city Melbourneian sort of people have them as their most important cherished minority group to protect, which I agree with completely, but also the some of those values that might be religious or cultural that are at complete odds with protecting other minority groups based on gender and what do we do? So these lumps and categories actually don't work and then politics is moving to label everything and categorise everything but that just won't work and I see that in Kangaroo and your explanation then that that sort of is true in so many other ways. What what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) I didn't have a question so I just threw it back to you. (laughs) Yes, what are my thoughts on that? Yes. Um, Take it off me. My my thoughts on that are you're totally right Um, and that there are so many different ways of being in the world and that, yeah, every every time you mark someone as being some sort of person or some type of person, you're probably making a mistake. And, that yeah, it's... It's too it's too much for one person to figure out. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I think it's part of the answer. No, but I, I I do love those analogies and the way that you almost use some absurd sort of ideas, but to bring it home on a really personal on a personal level too. I've got something I don't never usually do this, and I just want to open this up. <laughs> I've got a little bit of writing. I think I wrote it about a year ago perhaps. And I want you to share something that you have written and, and that'll be the, the A plus work. But I wanted to share something small for you just because it's, it's come up in my mind as I'm, we're talking about this, something I wanted to, I hope it's relevant, but um, it felt like this little bit of writing that I created called Moral Corruption um, came to mind when we've been talking about this. So I'll just start reading and we'll see how it goes. Do you mind? Yeah, go for Pretty it. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's not edited. This was just right. So <laughs> Stop I making first, excuses, go. <laughs> I first heard of the yellow crazy ant well before watching David Attenborough's Planet Earth 2. However, it was actually viewing the incessant and unceasing carnage that made me feel physically ill. Not simply because the yellow crazy ants torture and kill millions of red crabs each year, nor is it due to the wanton destruction of rainforest flora and natural habitat. It wasn't even because we humans introduced yellow crazy ants from Africa to Christmas Island and Australia on cargo ships. The disgust I felt was when I realised that the yellow crazy ant is comparatively nowhere near as destructive, invasive, violent and aggressive as we think, not when you compare them with humans. David Attenborough is now 93. Listening to Sir David on the brilliant and aptly named podcast Outrage and Optimism allowed me to feel vulnerable regarding my own grief. Here we have a man who has has devoted his professional and personal life to sharing the beauty of our unique and precious planet since the 1950s. He has changed the way people viewed our earth 
and has done so with more and more urgency as signs become clear that we are causing serious and irreversible damage. During the interview, Attenborough was asked how he feels about the world he will be leaving to his great-grandchildren. He was full of despair and grief. What he inherited no longer remains. The emotions he presented were fear, hopelessness, disappointment and sadness. He has watched deforestation, desertification, habitat loss, ecological disaster, climate change, coral reef depletion from the front row. I felt the sense that he is absolutely devastated and that we are leaving our children with a planet that is a shell of what it once was. I look around my home city of Melbourne, apparently the most livable city in the world, and all I see is sickness. I see an urban environment that is growing so fast it is disturbing. Grasslands with ancient trees, the green wedge and wetlands are all being levelled to make way for our new suburban habitats. My drive out to my workplace in Doreen in Melbourne's north used to be a country drive where kangaroos were plentiful. It is now a construction site. I have not seen a kangaroo for months. We have an urge to build and grow in the name of progress, but what I cannot help but feel, what we are doing is speeding up our demise, or at least removing the very thing that reminds us that we are of this earth. Nature, we are actually purging our our natural worth. I personally am struggling through all of this. I mentioned outrage and optimism earlier. The outrage is consistent and real while the optimism comes and goes. I am constantly shocked by the inaction by many, including myself, when it comes to being the change. It is hard. And then I just stopped. <laughs> and that was, that was it. That's really good. You, <laughs> Thank you. Should, you. Like, you should finish it and then get it published because it's really good. If that's just a draft, you're doing extremely well. Yeah, it just came to mind. So thank you, Jane, about yeah, that. But yeah, thanks for listening because you're coherent. the first person I've shared it with as well. So thanks for being that <laughs> um, voice for me. But it just echoes a lot of what... I feel you've been you've been talking about and bringing it about, but you've been able to make this your life's work. I said it was hard and had to stop, and I couldn't do it anymore. Does that happen to you? Ah, uh, yeah, definitely. After I finished writing from the wreck, which is my most recent published novel, I the next thing I wanted to write was a book that was tentatively called "The History of Extinction in Bohemia." And it was a series of interlinked stories about the idea of extinction. And I started researching it and writing it. And I was like, I know how long it takes me to write a book. It takes, you know, five to seven years. Do I really want to think about this for the next five to seven years? I was like, no, I can't do it. Can't think about this. Um, So instead, I've cheerfully been writing a book. Um, Again, it's a novel, which is about a group of young women who are witches in the 1930s. That's all very fun, except that they're fighting fascism, so that's less fun. But, you know, I I felt like I I couldn't think about the deaths of wild animals constantly for another seven years. That was, yeah, that was not going to work for me. I was going to lose my mind. So, yeah, it definitely happens to me. And I remember there was a reasonably long period in my life, I think it was when I was working at The Conversation, where, you know, I had to think about, mostly climate change, but also extinction and other issues every single day. And reading stuff written by people who were experts in this area, who really knew it and who were saying things that were much, much worse than what you're reading in regular media, where I would regularly think to myself, when will I know that it's done and there's nothing more we can do and I can stop thinking about this? (laughs) when and it was never a when will this be solved and we can live happily ever after because that so clearly wasn't happening um yeah it was 
when when do I know the world's doomed and I can (laughs) live out the next five years of my life drinking Manhattans and having a wonderful time as though it's possible. So yes, I have, there have been definitely times in my life where I've been like this, it's all too hard. I just can't think about this for a second longer, but it turns out I just keep thinking about it anyway. (laughs) Do you think you could stop? I mean, even if you wanted to? Yeah. No, no, I don't think I can stop. I mean, it's, it is, it's my framing issue for the world now. I mean, where other people's framing issue might be Bill Gates's conspiracy to kill us all. Climate change to some extent, but more so the fate of nature, our, our attitude to it, our depletion of it, all our complicated relationship with it is absolutely the, the, the glass through which I see the world now. It's, yeah. It's inescapable for me now. But we love same-day delivery. We love graffiti on walls. Yeah. We love cobblestones. <laughs> you know, people love this. So why nature? What is it about nature that you love and care about and cherish and you've chosen to live amongst it? Why is it so beautiful and gorgeous and needed? I love all those other things too. I love those things so much. Uh, I have an article coming out in an anthology that's out in October. I think the anthology is called living with the Anthropocene, and my article is called How Are We Supposed to Have Any Fun? And it's it's basically about how the things that I love most are those kinds of things, are those inner-city urban kind of things. I love that stuff. I love really good cocktails. I love awesome dresses. All those things are really precious to me. But my the guilt that... The, that they bring me for participating in that kind of a system is just just has just proven more than I could deal with. So, you know, I've, I've given up all that great stuff. But as far as nature goes, this is a thing I talk to often about my with about with my colleagues at the Tasmanian Land Conservancy because they're all genuine nature lovers in that they love to be in nature. They love to stride out into nature and just walk and walk for days and days. They know the names of everything. They're completely comfortable in the wild world. I am not, I do not like it. Um, I, I, I'm an urban person. So my relationship with nature is that It's vital and strange and massive and inexplicable and powerful and complicated and stupid and funny. It is all kinds of things that are so much more than just what humans are with with such a tiny, one tiny way of seeing and being in the world. There are so many other amazing ways of living that other creatures have and do that I will never understand and that I don't feel the need to actually be that among. I don't, I don't feel like I need to go out into proper nature. I just want to know it's there, you know, that there are alternatives. I often talk about how humans are always desperately looking for other life out there in the universe. Uh, when, will we find, when will we find other creatures who we can talk to? I'm like, the world is full of them and we just kill them and we you know either with neglect or deliberately we're surrounded by all kinds of different ways of seeing and knowing and thinking and understanding that how cool would it be if we made the effort to learn stuff from them about how the world works 
like, yeah, even if you just think about the different wavelengths of light that other creatures can see that we can't see, how cool is it if you could, like, have a glimpse of the world that way? It's all so big and mysterious and great and wonderful. Um, and it would be cool to keep it, I reckon, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it would be. It would be. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> I did a little bit of my own reading there, impromptuly. <laughs> but um, your most recent book, could you, I guess, explain a little bit about it, you know, when it came out and maybe share a little bit of something from that book as well? That would be lovely. Yeah, sure. Um, from the Wreck is a novel that is about my great-great-grandfather who was in a shipwreck, a real-life shipwreck, uh, in 1859 off the coast of South Australia. Boat sank. He was a steward on the boat, you know, the equivalent of the person who brings you a drink on the plane. And nearly everybody on that wreck died. Only a handful of people survived, and those who survived were trapped, semi-sunk in the water for eight days in the freezing southern ocean. Nobody could get out to them. Everyone could see them. The weather was so bad, they couldn't get to them to rescue them. So people are dying all around you. You're trapped. You're freezing cold. He was naked the whole time. He's 24 years old. He's, you know, he's a he's a waitress, basically. <laughs> yeah. How, so because he survived that, I exist. He did not have children before he went out on that ship. By whatever it was he did to get through that, I am lucky enough to be here on Earth. So I wanted to write something about him and initially I was just going to write a straight historical fiction novel that was about that time, the kind of, we don't know much about him, we know very little about him, um, to try and imagine myself into that person and how he might have survived that and what the implications of that might have been for the rest of his life. I ended up having also an alien in the book because that's how my mind works. It just wasn't making sense to me as a normal narrative. And because the thing that preoccupied me at the time and still does was the way that we treat other species and the way that we marginalise them and ignore them and treat them as disposable, that was something I wanted to write about. So that's actually what this book is about. It is about an alien from another dimension whose world has been terraformed by the human equivalent in that dimension so that her world is no longer livable for her kind. So it's sort of like what humans have done to the earth here, made it unlivable for anything except humans. So she's fled that world and has ended up in 19th century Port Adelaide. She's a shape-shifting creature who is mostly an octopus. She's trying to find the rest of her people who have fled her dimension and meanwhile, he's just trying to live in this, you know, Victorian era. The first person she meets is my great-great-grandfather. He is, she's in the shape of a woman at the time. He becomes obsessed with her. He can never find her again after the shipwreck. The one woman who survived the shipwreck in real life disappeared straight away and became a mystery and nobody could ever find her again. She, in my book, takes the form of a cat and a mouse and eventually a birthmark on the back of the son of my great-great-grandfather. Um, so there's a kind of melding of personality between this little boy, Henry, and this alien life form from elsewhere as they both try to deal with the complications of life. And, yeah, I guess it's about why we're so frightened of or ignorant about things that are different to ourselves and how much more joy we might find in the world if we could somehow overcome that, if we could expand our horizons 
little, if we could take in a bit more of the world as something of value to us. So that's from the wreck. <laughs> you said you wanted me to read a little bit? Um, okay. Oh, I would, I would I've love never that. read this Absolutely. bit out loud before. Yeah, yeah, all right. Let's do this then. Uh, so this bit is uh, is about Henry, the little boy. So Henry has this birthmark on him that shares his brain with him. They talk to each other. As far as anyone else knows, it's just a birthmark. He doesn't know it's an alien or anything. It's just something that's been part of him his whole life. He, he knows and dreams and sees things that other people don't, and he doesn't know why. He just thinks he's weird, and his dad doesn't like him because he's weird. His life is strange. So he, he's over at his aunt and uncle's house. Uh, his uncle is a scientist, and he's been asking him about evolution, which is a, a, a new theory that this folk, this chap Charles Darwin has just come up with. He wants to know more about it. So his uncle has been showing him Ernst Haeckel's the, the Tree of Life, essentially, and showing him where all the different things live on it. Henry stretched out his arm to touch the page and ran his finger over the drawings of mollusks, the nautilus, the octopus. His uncle William carried on. It does appear the primitive fishes became the amphibians, who became the primitive mammals, who became the apes, who became us. So, yes, Henry, I guess we all did come from fishes. Sarah, his aunt, was leaning over Henry, trying to get a good look at the diagram. What are the whales doing all the way over here with the horses and the sloths? Shouldn't they be down the bottom with the fishes? Hmm, Uncle William stared closer. Well, that is perplexing. A transcription error, perhaps, he said, and closed the book. Henry reached to grab it from him. No, wait, he said, show me again. William opened the book. These are the creatures, Henry murmured, soft, shifting, with strong tentacles, suckers that grip. He stroked the pictures again, felt a sad, grasping kind of comfort seeping from the mark on his back. The mollusks, Uncle William said, a kind of soft animal, a creature without bones. You know, the only hard part of its whole body is the beak it uses to eat. It's a very early animal, Henry. No one really knows where they came from. Older even than the fishes? Well, that's right, because fishes couldn't exist until bones were invented, and it took a long time to evolve bones. Your creatures got a head start because they decided bones weren't necessary to their development. They could get on just fine without them. So maybe that's where we all came from? No, it doesn't work quite like that. We all came from the soft worm that turned into the first fish, you see. William ran his finger over the diagram. Henry nodded. And once everyone that was lived under the water, once the whole earth was ocean? Well, not technically, Henry. There was still land, plenty of land. It was just that nobody lived on it. How strange, Auntie Sarah said. In a sense, then, the whole world was ocean. Yes, in a sense, William agreed. What a thing to think about, she said. I really never have before that all the life on this earth lived in the ocean. Everyone there was was a fish or a soft worm, or some other kind of mollusk, a sea squirt, maybe a starfish, perhaps some kind of sponge, William went on. And we once were fish, said Henry. Once we could live under the ocean too and breathe the water and drink the water. And then we changed and we had to come out onto the land or we would have drowned or died of thirst. And then we couldn't float anymore and we had to learn how to stand up and walk around, which was a lot harder. And when we were standing up, we got embarrassed because everyone could see us and so we invented clothes. And now we wish that maybe we could go back under the water and live and breathe and drink there and just float all the time and never wear clothes. We could be fish again. He reached for a fresh piece of paper and began to draw. 
He drew his mother and his father and Georgie and little Wills, and he drew Sarah and William, and none of them were wearing clothes. And they were all shaped as though they had no bones, just floating about. He added tentacles here and there and gills on the side of their heads. Around them, coloured fish were swimming and sharks, and there were starfish and four tentacled creatures. Up in the top corner, a boneless tiger was swimming after a boneless sheep. And across the bottom, he wrote, all one animal in the underwater world. That's Henry. Henry. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> that's okay. Where does cre the creativity come from? Where is, does your inspiration come from? Is it a known thing or does it just happen to you? Kind of just happens to me. It is a combination of the kinds of things I want to write about, which are, you know, things like maybe we shouldn't destroy the ocean so the octopuses can't live there anymore. And a disinterest, I guess, in the idea of just telling people stuff, um, partly what we were talking about earlier, that if I tell people you shouldn't destroy the ocean, whatever, what do they care? You know, they've got stuff to do. And I don't want to write like that either. It's boring. It gets really boring. So my mum says I'm just crazy. So, you know, in a nice way she says that, of course. Um, Henry. <laughs> yeah. Are you the Henry? Yeah. Did you channel yourself? I kind of... I kind of am, I guess, in that my head has always been full of stories about things, of things just looking different to me than they do to a lot of people, I guess. Yeah, of having a lot of questions about how things are, why are they that way, and what if they were this way? Wouldn't that be interesting? Yeah, it, it's just how my brain works, I think. That's just how my brain works. And it keeps me entertained and interested. And writing takes a long time and it doesn't make any money. And so if it's no fun for you, what's the point? Did you love writing as a, as a kid or was that something that came later? I did really love writing as a kid. I loved writing stories and really terrible poems. But I can't remember ever thinking when I was a kid that when I grew up I wanted to be a writer. That was not something that I ever thought about. Um, I did think about, like we said, like I wanted to be a journalist when I was much older because I'd always yeah I had always been good at English and reading and writing essays yeah I, I have a, my mind is structured well like that so yeah I guess it always seemed like it would be the career for me it would be something to do with words but as far as writing creatively that didn't really occur to me till I was about 30 I think had you given it a shot just you know behind the scenes or was it something you said I want to start writing creatively what can I do to do that how did it work um, it's hard to remember. Um, <laughs> you think I would have thought about this more. Um, it, no, I really did not write anything apart from occasional bursts of like drunk poetry, um, that, you know, everyone basically does when you, like, someone's broken your heart and you feel like you need to write some poems about it, that kind of thing. But sort of structured creative writing, a story, uh, Really nothing. The first time I tried seriously to write fiction was when a friend of mine, when I lived in the US, I lived in San Francisco for four years um, at the turn of the century. Uh, he, he started up a thing called National Novel Writing Month, which later turned into a colossus, but at the time was just an idea that he had in his head. And he was like, so last year, me and three of my friends decided in November that we would write 50,000 words each because, you know, everyone should write a novel at some point, right? So, you know, this year do you want to join in? 
So, yeah, I was one of like 24 or 25 people, I think, who that year in November each wrote 50,000 words. That was the first time I seriously tried to write a thing. And then once I'd written that thing, I was like, oh, it's actually pretty good. And it was terrible, but it seemed like it was actually pretty good. And from that point, pretty much, I was like, well, okay, I could write things and then I could try to get them published. I didn't realise how hard getting things published was. I had no idea. I didn't know anyone who did that. I hadn't done any sort of creative writing course. The concept of the marketplace of publishing was completely alien to me. I was just like, so you write a book and then you like, what, call an agent or something and they publish it, which turned out not to be the case. So, yeah. (laughs) 50,000 words straight up. Is that... Do most people, would you say that you've spoken to, jump into short story writing and and little chunks and then maybe go to a big novel or is it just whatever people feel? Everyone's different. Everyone's different, I think. And there's not a strong short story culture in Australia. Uh, There is more now, I think, than there was. But short story, like most people don't read short stories, I guess is what I'm saying. So most Mm. people who would love books and want to become a writer, think of books as a novel. So, yeah, most people who think they're going to write a thing think they're going to write a novel. And some of them start and do a little bit and most of them don't. Um, One day they're going to write a novel. Um, And some of them push on and do the whole thing and others of them go, I should go to school to learn how to write a novel and that's when they probably start writing short stories. Yeah, okay. I listened to Neil Gaiman recently on Conversations on ABC and he was saying that 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 you, he wrote Norse mythology, uh, which was short stories, and he said that, you know, it's amazing that it sold so well considering short stories always do so poorly. So I do get that. And I do understand that I guess there's so many elements. You can't just say, I read this book. It's amazing. You should read this and, and we can talk about it for weeks. It's more, wow, that hits that hits hard and then you sort of go to the next one. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Who, who are your favourite authors? Ha! Huh. <laughs> Sorry, there's more to that question. No, no, uh, that was the question, but I, I was going to okay. say something. But, you know, who are your favourite authors? <laughs> um, my favourite authors, there. I Okay, so I read about 100 books a year um, and the vast majority of that is novels. So read a lot of books. So I like a lot of people. Uh, But writers who I really admire are Ali Smith, who's a Scottish feminist novelist, I guess you would say, and short story writer, who also loves things to be a bit strange. So her stories are not science fiction, but they, they all take place in ostensibly the real world, but weird stuff happens. She's also really political, and I, I really like stories that are political. Um, and she's funny as well and has just a beautiful turn of phrase. So I would say she's one of my favourite writers. David Mitchell is an author. I have all his books. I haven't read his new book lately and I thought his book before his new book wasn't that great, but he's someone who was one of the first writers I read who made me think, okay, you can write strange, imaginative, disjointed stuff that isn't science fiction and you can get it published, and then later it can win a Booker Prize. So this is this is writing that can be done. This is mm. the sort of thing I want to do. This is this is kind of a model for what it is that I'm I've been thinking I want to do. These are all 
like foreign authors. There are really good Australian authors as well. There are a lot of really good Australian authors um, <laughs> and none of them are spring to mind. I'm not sitting in front of my bookshelf. Um, <laughs> but I think one of, well, two of the books out of Australia that I have thought were some of the best things I've read in recent years are Rubik, which is a novel in stories by a writer from Perth called Elizabeth Tan, which is such a clever, strange, beautifully constructed book set in the near future, which is all about technology and social structures and politics and the economy, but is also weird and funny and smart and has lots of strange things. It has a talking octopus in it as well. Yeah, but one it. of the best books, I think, one of the best books that's happened in Australia in a long time. It's just brilliant. Um, and the other one is The Book of Dirt by Bram Presser, which is he is a Jewish writer in Melbourne who wanted to write something about his family's experience in the Holocaust and set out to do it and immediately hit all kinds of practical, logistical and moral issues that he didn't know what to do with. And so he's written a work that is a composite of fictionalised account of what happened, part of its documentary non-fiction about what happened, some of it's completely made up because he has no idea, and some of it is about him as a writer trying to figure out how to write this book that he's writing. So it's a big meta intertextual work that is also really like compelling and wonderful to read. Oh, fantastic. Thanks. I'll get no uh, hands on all of those. Um, yeah. <laughs> and where can people find you and your work? Where can people hunt you down and find out more about you and, and the stuff that you write? Sure. I have a website, which is janerawson.com, um, that has links to a lot of my short fiction where it's available online and to my essays, some of which, of course, will have a paywall and also has information about my novels and novella and the handbook about climate change on it. My more recent stuff is in, like, regular bookshops. My final question for you today, Jane, and I ask this at the end of every podcast, is do you have a moment of clarity that you've had recently or during this conversation that you'd like to share with us today? I knew this was coming and so I should have prepared for it. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it has long been part of what I've believed about myself and nature that it is not important to live in or be in contact with nature in order to care about nature and want to protect nature. I still ascribe to that belief of being able to have contact with nature is a massive privilege. Most people can't have it. I think it's important that we work out ways to protect and care about nature that aren't reliant on people having an experience, a direct experience of nature particularly as for many of the species living in nature, coming into contact with humans is bad for them and they hate it. However, I went for a walk up Hearts Peak before the lockdown and this happens to me a lot in Tasmania. I just have to stand there and stare because it's so beautiful, because it's so remarkable, it's so astonishing and it just fills me with complete joy about the world and how the world is and how wonderful it is. And at that point, my moment of clarity was, okay, it's possible to care about and want to protect nature without being in contact with it, but being here makes me feel like I'd be prepared to die for this. So that, I think, is the extra step, to have that profound emotional connection to it that makes you feel like this is worth dying for. 
Oh, that's brilliant. No, thank that's you. That's a sound bite. There you go. I stopped. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Jane, thank you so much for joining me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, thanks for listening to me as well as sharing so much about yourself. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. And keep working on that piece because it's really good. You write really well. Do it. I will. All right. Thank you. Uh, if Jane Rawson says so, I'll do it. <laughs> thanks. <laughs> If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family, and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback, or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast, or on Twitter at BarneyMOC. You can also email me on momentsofclaritypodcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney, and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.